welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It was recently reported that the richest 85 people in the world hold as much wealth as the poorest 3.5 billion. The very poorest in the world live in constant fear of violence, far from the law's protection. Is it really strange that Jesus said he came to preach good news to the poor? Teaching team member David McNeely continues the series Calling with this message entitled Called to the World, which covers John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and Luke chapter 4, verses 4 through 21. Thank you for joining us today. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for the opportunity that you have given us uh, to gather together um, as your people, as your children, as your saints, as your servants, as your friends. You have called us, and so Lord, thank you. I pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might see what it is that you want us to see. I pray that you would open our ears, that we might hear what it is that you want us to hear. And I pray that you would open our hearts, that we might receive from you what it is that you want to say. So Lord, if there's anything that comes from my mouth today that's not from you, then just wipe it out of our minds. Let it go in one ear and out the other, forever to be forgotten. But Lord, that which you want us to to sit on, to dwell on, that which is from you, I pray that you would bury it deep within our souls and we would become doers of your word rather than just hearers only. We love you. We're thankful for you. Help us to worship well now. It is in Christ's name. Amen. We are coming close to the end of this series. This series is entitled Calling. And it's looking at the the fact that there is a caller, God, who sends out a call to his children to come a run into him. And so we started out the series by talking about the fact that Jesus is the primary call. He is the hook. Everything hinges on this right here. We are called first and foremost to a person. We're not called to a system. We're not called to a philosophy. We're not called to a religion. We're called to a person. Now, it doesn't mean that we check out mentally. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with apologetics. In fact, I teach an apologetics class. It's very important. It's good. It's right. But that's not what we're called to. Apologetics separated or divorced from Jesus is just knowledge that just puffs up. Religion, it's not that we're not called to a certain set of duties. We certainly have duties that God has called us to, but those duties set aside from and divorced from Christ are just things to do. We are called to a person. Then Bob, last uh, the second week, talked about being called to a family. Being a family is not just something that is there to merely enhance or enrich our lives, but the very fact that God made family gives us an indication as to who God is. It's based on his character. It shows who he is. The basic difference is between a husband and a wife. Put on display the full character of God. He has some of God's characteristics. She has some of God's characteristics. And when the two become one, we get a much better picture as to who God is. But it hinges on our calling to Christ. He talked about work last week. Work was not just something that we do simply as a means to an end, but work is something that we join God in as he brings about the redemption to all of earth. You utilize your skills, your talents, your vision, etc. that he places in your heart and you do it to the best of your ability. God empowers you. Jesus comes alongside, actually fills you with his spirit and enables you to do something at your job that you couldn't even do without him. But it all hinges on Jesus. Called him first. Next week, 
Bob will close out our series and he will talk about our calling to the bride of Christ, calling to the church. I've made this statement for years with other students, but it's going to be very difficult to have a good relationship with me if you love me and hate Judith. It's going to be very difficult. Jesus says, it's good to love me. And you're also called to my bride. My son, not too terribly long ago, was in an argument with Judith and he was spouting off at the mouth and, and he's with all the maturity of a nine-year-old that goes in with that. And so my wife informs me of this and, and I, I took it as my duty. I remember what my dad did to my hind when I did that to my mom and took it upon me as a duty to have a conversation with my son. And I said, son, I don't expect you to love her the way that I love her but you will honor my bride. We'll hear about that next week. And this week, we are called to the world. We are called to make an impact in the world, to love the world the same way that Jesus loved the world. We are called to invest in the world. We're called to sacrifice for the world. We are called to go after the world, to go on the love offensive in the same way that Jesus did. It all hinges on Jesus, though. You know I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to ask it to you. It's, it's rhetorical. Do you really think that you're going to be able to live a life that goes after the world in such a manner um, that you love them and sacrifice them, et Do you really think that you're going to be able to do that for the rest of your life without Jesus? There's only one guy who has ever lived, who went after the world in perfection, who did not tolerate sin but yet embraced sinners, who laid his life down. Greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. There's only one man who's ever done that to perfection, and our call to the world all hinges on him. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus so that you can live like Jesus. Today is going to be a very simple message, so hear me. You are called to lay down your life for the freedom of people. And there's something that stirs deeply in your soul that says, yes, I want to do that. There's something that stirs in your soul over the fact that there have been men and women throughout history who have gone off to foreign soil and they have laid down their very lives for people that they will never, ever meet, that they will never shake hands with, that they will never have an impact on directly. They have laid their lives down. Why? So that others can be free to be set free from the power and tyranny of oppression of dictators, et cetera, throughout the world. There are those who have made sacrifices and all of us say yes, and we love those stories. Set up from this stage before, if, you, if you're a dude, you probably love the movie Braveheart. And that scene when they're about to pull apart body parts from him, every man, every one of us, here's the name, all you gotta do is say mercy, just say mercy. And it'll all stop. All the pain will go away. And what does he say instead? He cries out, freedom. And he lays his life down. And every man wants to jump through the wall and say, freedom. <laughs> There's something that stirs in our soul 
about people being freed. Now, why is that? Why is it that we get so excited when, when the woman who has been enslaved in the, in the sex trafficking industry is freed from that uh, international justice mission, goes in, they work with the local governments and authorities, and they free this woman from that oppression? What is it deep and down inside of us? Why do we cheer for that so much? Because we know it ain't right. And people who live in bondage and in slavery, we want them to be free. The reason, though, that it's so deep inside of us is because Christ put it inside of us to see the bigger picture. Do I want people freed from from tyranny and oppression of governments? Absolutely. But it points to the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is people must be freed from the power and the penalty of sin. They must come from out of the oppression of the evil one who loves to have people in his clutches. That's what stirs deeply within our souls. We want them to walk in freedom. Now, why do we want them to be free? Is freedom the ultimate goal? Is freedom the ultimate value? Is it really freedom that we are after or is freedom a means to an end? Freedom is there to give us to something else. What is that something else? People are freed so that they might worship. What we are really after is freeing people so that God's fame can be spread all throughout the globe because deep down inside of our hearts, what comes from Habakkuk is is true. And that is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God from day one has been on a relentless pursuit to spread his fame all throughout the globe. Now, what does it mean when God's fame is spread? It means that people see the truth. They have an understanding They have been set free by the only one who could ever set them free. And their image of him, their view of him, their impression of him is what it ought to be. That's fame. I'm not talking about silly fame that is is just on a short-term basis. Pick any movie star you want right now or any athlete you want right now. Nothing wrong with being a movie star. Nothing wrong with being an athlete. I have nothing against that. What I'm saying is that type of fame is there for a day. And it's gone. I'm talking about a fame that goes from one generation to the next, that this generation will declare the greatness of God to this one. And they will rise up. And they'll talk about their Redeemer. I think all of us, all of us, regardless of race, religion, creed, etc., all of us long to live this balanced life. But my question to us this morning is this. Has our scale that we've been using for that balanced life to measure that balance, is that really big enough? Now, I got nailed to the wall. I mean, nailed to the wall for the last couple of weeks as, uh, as Bob was preaching. I was sitting up there two weeks ago. I was sitting up there last week. And just a quick side note for you, I haven't had a, a 12 o'clock service in years in which I've had nothing to do. The traffic you guys deal with, holy cow. That's atrocious. Afterwards, I started to throw that in. So I'm sitting over there and over here on these two weeks, and I'm listening to Bob, and I'm just getting very, very uncomfortable. And I know what's coming. We've talked about this series. I'm getting so nailed to the wall as he talks about, are you drifting in life? 
Meaning, are you just wandering aimlessly, meandering? It could be at home, it could be at work, where you just are kind of walking through life, through the mundane. There's no real challenge there. There's no real intentionality. There's no real direction. You're just showing up because you're supposed to show up. You're on that end of the spectrum? That's not me, typically. Or are you over here? Where you are so driven driven to succeed. Maybe you're driven by pride. Maybe you're driven by fear. What is it that you are driven by so that you have an unhealthy approach to make sure that you accomplish what it is you set out to accomplish? I gave the extreme example of a coach who fired his wife because she got in the way of coaching. Now, I think all of us, he's, that coach is the rare exception. That's not the norm. The norm is that we all want to live a balanced life. So what do we try to do? Well, we try to eat a balanced meal. It's a good thing. Go for it. We try to balance work and home. We try to make sure that the schedule is, that I'm not totally and completely neglecting the folks at home, and yet I'm not neglecting the work. So we try that. And all those are good things, but those are subsets. What I want to say is I think the scale that we ought to be using is this. Is your life presently? Being balanced by the scale, and that scale is this. Are you after the fame of God and the freedom of man? Is that what you are living for? Because that is a called life, a life that is called by Jesus to come and to join him, the only person in all of human history who lived it perfectly every second of every day, fulfilling all of the law of God. The first half of the Ten Commandments have to do with glorifying God. The second half of the Ten Commandments have to do with the freedom of man. Are you living for God's fame and man's freedom? That's the scale. So today, very simple. We want to talk about one mind, and that is the mind of Christ. The mind that Christ had that enabled him to live this life directly in the center of the road, called by God, sent by God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We want to have that same mind as what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2. We want to have those same two passions. One mind, two passions, fame and freedom. And then we're going to have three questions that we're going to ask you here at the end of the service to just help give us a little bit of direction uh, as we go. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 2. And I'm going to look very quickly um, at, at Jesus, how Jesus is not only the model for this, but we'll see how he is actually the source of power uh, for this as well. John chapter 2. Begin reading with me in uh, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal. 
your house will consume me. It's almost time for the Jewish Passover, which was set up to remind them of what had taken place. Now, what had taken place was that there was these people who were enslaved by a whole other nation, the most powerful nation on the earth, and God shows up to a man speaking through a bush. The bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he says, hey, uh, Moses, I want you to free my people. Go down, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. What was the reason for that? So that they might worship me. I want them to be freed from oppression, freed from tyranny, freed from from slavery, and I want them to come out into a place where they will be able to to freely worship me. So what happens is they do that, they get sent out there, and then the last sign that they had that was trying to make sure that the nation understood, this is God who is asking this. This just isn't some random man that's coming up and asking for freedom for his people. This is God And so God gave several signs. The last one was the death. There was going to be this sign that would pass over in this death angel. And as long as the blood was over here and right here, then that death angel would pass over that and would not bring about the death that would come to that house. And so the Passover is set up to celebrate what it is that God had done. What God, nobody could have pulled this off. I mean, they had some other folks that were able to turn staffs into snakes that one still freaks me out they had other folks that could do some magic tricks they had the folks that that were in the demonic world that were able to match some of this stuff but nobody could do what it is that God did there and so when they come out of there he says I want you to to, to do this as a sign and I want you to do this to remember what it is that I did it's that time of year in which the people's mind are to be taken back saying oh God thank you for freeing us. And they do that through sacrifice, not just, not, not just um, words that would come out of their mouth, not just an intellectual assent to the truth, not just throwing some coins into a plate, not just going through the motions. They would do that so that out of the depths of their soul, they would say, God, thanks. And so he goes up to Jerusalem, which was up on a mountain. And he walks in and he sees this scene where the folks should be focused in, zeroed in on what it is that God has done, thanking God all over again for the freedom, looking forward to the freedom that was promised them coming in the future. And he finds business happening as usual. Now, it wasn't bad in and of itself. What the the system was set up to do is that those were coming from a faraway place wouldn't be able to bring their sacrifice so they could come and they could purchase a sacrifice. So they could sacrifice money on their end to be able to purchase this and then offer it to God as acceptable. It was a good system. The problem was is that they were taking advantage of people and the problem was also that where there should have been just simply the worship of God taking place, there were folks sitting back going through the motions, making money. We can sell God. That's easy to do. It's a supernatural thing to worship God. And God doesn't need to be sold. He just wants to be worshiped. So Jesus sees this scene and, and, and what he does is he then takes some cords and he puts together a whip. And when I think about a whip, what immediately goes through my mind 
is the old days, the dark days of, of American history where we actually treated people because of the pigment of their skin as if they were non-humans. And so they were beaten ruthlessly out of frustration, out of anger, out of evil. And that's what I think of when I think, well, Jesus made this whip, but that's not what it says right here. Jesus makes this whip, and then he goes after the cattle and the sheep. Now, it's the easiest way to move cattle along in the process. He's not harming the animals. He's moving them out of the way. Maybe he did whip some people. Maybe he didn't, but I can't imagine. It would be, let me say it this way. It would be inconsistent with Jesus' character if he were to do it in the same way that my mind goes back and thinks of what was taking place in the 1700s, 1800s. Jesus takes this whip, though. Why? Because they're not worshiping. And for Jesus, that drove him nuts. Now, you've got to hear this. What didn't drive Jesus nuts was when those who made no claim whatsoever to worship God, those who had no claim whatsoever that they were God-fearers or God-worshippers, those who lived lives that were very, um, very much not consistent with, the, with what's laid out in the Scripture, that, that's, that's not what angered Jesus. What angered him is those who came in week in and week out, who claimed to be associated with him, and who worshipped him with their lips only. Now, I'll tell you about his heart in just a second for those who are outside the faith, but, but what drove Jesus nuts was they were using God. And so he drives them out. He then comes over to, uh, to, the, to the tables, and it says that he scatters the coins. He turns over their tables as the money just rolls down all throughout the floor. And then he comes over to where the birds are, and he tells them, get it out of here. And it says it with an exclamation point in my 1984 NIV. If your translation doesn't have an exclamation point, you have a bad translation. <laughs> exclamation point, he, get out. And his disciples. Oh, that's right, zeal. Zeal for your house will consume me. He's quoting a psalm from David who talked about his zeal for the house of the Lord and the presence of God because that's where God's presence was. And, and Jesus, it wasn't about brick and mortar for Jesus right now. It, it, is, it is the fact that the Father had set this up so that he could be approached appropriately and honored and glorified, that his reputation would be made great among all the nations. And zeal was consuming him. But please hear this. I think what Jesus is actually saying, what Luke is trying to get across to us, is not just that Jesus had a passion for God's glory, but it was that passion for God's glory that would actually cause him to go to a cross. That zeal for God's fame would consume him. It would, it, meaning it would destroy him physically. Because others are offended at that. And it was what drove him, in the best sense of the word, to a cross. What drove Jesus primarily to a cross was God's reputation. I was uh, just a college student 
And I was playing softball one particular day. Now, every member of my family are, are great baseball players, with the exception of mom. She's a pianist. Uh, my older brother, my younger brother, my dad um, all played college at the next, or played uh, baseball at the next level. Uh, my cousins played. I, man, I'm scared to death of that little thing coming in at speeds and moving and all that stuff. I just, no desire for that whatsoever. I want a bigger ball that bounces that, I mean, it'll break your nose, but it won't like, you know, give you a concussion if you get hit by it. So I'm in a softball tournament with my family. It's dad, it's my older brother, it's me, there's some of our friends, and um, my mom would later tell us, uh, tell us that after my little brother was born, it wasn't too long after that, that dad had shared with her that he one day longed to play softball with all of his boys. That would be a dream of his. And so the dream was being fulfilled. And I love my dad. You've heard me say it from this stage before, and I really do believe this. I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods. I really believe that aside from Jesus Christ, my dad is the greatest man to ever walk the earth. Humble. Humble to the core. Deeply sinful. Deeply flawed. And yet I got to hear about those flaws from the earliest of ages growing up. I was under no pretenses that dad was something he was not. But my dad is my hero. There's been no man that's had the impact on my life like my earthly father. My dad is a good man. And every time I go to speak somewhere, someone will come up there afterwards and they'll say, are you by chance Hal McNeely's son? And I'll say, I'm his middle son. And they'll go into some story about what dad has done for them. In this softball tournament, we're playing against this other team and my dad was pitching. He's, you know, my dad played softball until I think he was about 65 years old, but he was no spring chick when we were in this tournament here. And so he was pitching, and, and there was a particular call that was made, and this guy at the plate was so frustrated that he just takes it out on my dad. And he takes it out by blurting out, you're a cheater. Dad wasn't cheating. There was nothing to cheat. It, it's softball. <laughs> there are umps that are there. That it's, you know. So he, he then, I mean, starts walking out and goes after my dad. I mean, he is like finger coming across. And you know what happened to the three McNeely boys at that point? We lost all rational thought. No ability to walk in the spirit at this particular moment. And we are on a beeline for this gentleman. <laughs> what angered me so deeply was that this man was calling my dad something that he was not. Because my dad's reputation was at stake, and it stung. See, from the time that the garden had happened, from the time that Adam and Eve had made the sin, the evil one had the opportunity to go all across the world and to spread this message. He doesn't love you. He's not good. He, the, the evil one would spread all kinds of vicious lies about the father and nobody could do anything about it. We were helpless. And Jesus says, enough. And he comes down to earth so that the invisible would become visible. So that we might see in human form who God actually is, his character, his worth, his value. And Jesus lived it perfectly. And Jesus did it because he wanted his father's name to be cleared. That's what drove Jesus. 
So zeal for my father's house will consume me, means Jesus. That's what drove him to embrace death. It is the fame of God, but it is also the freedom of men. They are not divorced and separated from one another. They're like two arms that are part of one body. They are two parts of the train track so the train can move down. The kingdom of God moves down on one track of the freedom of man and the other track, the fame of God. So real quickly turn to Luke chapter 4. Hit this real quickly. Jesus, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. His fame is growing, in other words. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He goes into the synagogue, and as was the custom, they would open up a scroll and read from that scroll and then begin teaching from it, very similar to what we do here. And the scroll comes to Jesus. And Jesus opens it up to a section of Isaiah and he reads. And in case anyone missed the emphasis that Jesus was making on the fact that it's me, he makes it abundantly clear at the end when he says, Today it is fulfilled. That term in the language is used in the past tense, but it's used in the past perfect tense, meaning it was something that was accomplished, but the effects of it are ever ongoing. Meaning Jesus opens it up to to the place in Isaiah where he says, by the way, I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to heal. I'm going to bring about wholeness again. For those whose lives are in shambles, I'm coming to fix it. I'm going to give sight to the blind. I'm going to make the lame walk. I'm going to set good news for the poor. Yes, certainly for those who are economically poor, but far more driven at those who are spiritually bankrupt, meaning those who cannot do something on their own, who cannot make themselves right with God. I'm coming for you. He rolls it up, hands it over, sits down, meaning his job is finished in that reading. It's fulfilled. Jesus was driven by the fame of God. And that, in the best sense of the word, I'm sorry, don't get lost on the drifting and and driven. He was called... 
passion was for the fame of God. And the best way to get to the fame of God is to set captives free. To go to a place where the reputation of God is miserable. And to run throughout all of the community saying, no, you don't understand. That's not who he is. He can heal you. He can free you from your alcohol addiction. He can free you from your addiction to porn. He can free you from your enslavement as you find yourself gossiping over and over and over again. He can free you from your anger. He can free you from your guilt, your your, your greed. Fill in whatever you want to fill in. He can free you from that. And you know because you've tried to go down this road, you've tried to manage your life somehow or another, but there's probably something in your life right now that is just flat out bigger than you are. And you can't overcome this one. And when we experience freedom from that one, we know where the freedom came from. I've said this many times, but AA is what God used to bring about sobriety for me. It did not free me, though. AA is one of the only remaining organizations that does exactly what it says it's going to do, and that is to sober you up, but it cannot and will not ever provide for you the freedom that you long for deep in your soul. Freedom from the penalty and power of sin only comes in a walk with Jesus. Jesus is the one who sets the captives free. And when you get set freed from something, oh, you won't have any trouble at all worshiping him. So I know what is deep in your heart is that those who are enslaved presently would be set free from it. God wants to use you in that process. Now, how is he going to use you? I don't know. I know, though, that that the mindset that we have is is a wartime mentality. I, I was gripped by the opening scene of session two of A Band of Brothers that HBO put together, a book from Stephen Ambrose. And as all these men are jumping out of these airplanes in World War II in a country that was not theirs to go set a people free who were not theirs. This, this scene with all these parachutes as guns are going, some are dying in the process. They were all coming down to the ground. I was gripped with the fact that this is the church. This is what we are called to, to enter into enemy territory and to take the gospel of Jesus to a world who desperately needs to be freed. That's what you're called to. So you're called simply to just join Jesus in his mission. So let me close with just those three questions. First, what do you need to be freed from today so that you can passionately pursue the fame of God and the freedom of man? I still need to be freed. You still need to be freed Ain't a person in this room that doesn't need to be freed. What do you need to be freed from so that you can passionately pursue God's fame and man's freedom? Secondly, how can God use me today, where I am right now, to spread his fame? How can he use you in your family? How can he use you in your work? How can he use you in wherever it is that he's called you to be right now? to spread his fame. I don't know the answer to that. You got to spend some time with him to listen. And then lastly, how can God use me today, right now where I am, to set people
The way God uses me is with words. The way God uses my wife is with her actions. In word and in deed. I hope that you have not been bored this morning. I hope that you haven't settled in to what is so easy for me to get settled into. And that is to a Christian life where I show up at church, where I read my Bible, where I meet with my small group, and I perform the things that I'm supposed to perform all the while never letting God grip my very soul with Jesus' passion. So my prayer for us as a church is that God would light us on fire for his fame and for the freedom of those that are around us. I want to fight for them so they can worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, to you goes all the honor and the glory and the credit for the life that you alone could live. And so God, thank you for who you are and what it is that you have done. Lord, we do ask for the same passion that Jesus has and how you will put that deep inside of us is a mystery to me, but I know that your spirit is capable of it. So God, um, do your work. Have, um, Have your way with our lives. Do with us whatever you choose. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.